this week on Life and Faith. Those galaxies are just baby galaxies that we're seeing. They're what we call proto-galaxies. They have some stars and some gas, but they're not very massive. But we can't see all the way back to the very beginning. That's what everybody would like to know. The systems that we trust in to know have broken down. You know that the local social services are in trouble because they're phoning us. We've already got six kids in the house. But I've learned that even when it doesn't go well, I can be okay. What's the best way to understand the world and what live in it? Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Recently, we've been seeing some amazing images of deep space from the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, if ever I take time to think about these things, I find them mind-bending and awe-inspiring. You might too, I imagine. Well, this week is Science Week, so we thought it was the perfect time to replay an interview we did in 2018 with astronomer Jennifer Wiseman. Now, Jennifer has been studying the cosmos for over 30 years and even has a comet named after her. She was in Australia for the World Science Festival when CPX received an invitation to speak at a satellite event. Here's what happened. Now, at Centre for Public Christianity, or CPX, we often get invites to speak at various things, conferences and so on. And not so long ago, uh, one came through to me, which was an invitation to send someone to a science conference. Now, I'm not known for my science and maths, and to be honest, nor are many of my colleagues, so I flicked this to, and it was a hospital pass to Natasha. (laughs) Really passed the buck there. Not known for your maths and science, but (laughs) it sort of led you in a good direction, right? Yeah, so I'm, traditionally, I'm kind of one of those people who I quit science the second it stopped being compulsory Mm. at school, but... In recent years, I've been kind of reconsidering my indifference to science and realizing that, okay, actually, it is kind of cool. But, you know, I was a bit like, really, me? You want me to come and speak at a science conference? What happened? It was actually fabulous. And I got to do some really interesting reading and prep for it. And I got to speak to a bunch of really interesting people who were there. So I interviewed a guy who has lived on Mars sort of. Uh, He's done a simulation um, in a desert on Earth as though, you know, an expedition to Mars. So that's about as close as, yeah. Um, And also I got to hear from this amazing astronomer. Her name's Jennifer Wiseman. She gave this talk about the stars, which had just some of the most stunning images I think I've ever seen. I sat there with my mouth hanging open and being a bit like, why am I not an astronomer? Why is anybody ever anything except an astronomer? This is clearly the coolest thing ever. Also, she has a comet named after her. Really? Yeah. So it's a really cool story, actually. I made sure to ask her about it when we spoke. But first, she's from the United States, and this was her first time in the Southern Hemisphere. So I started by asking her if she has been looking up while she's here. The skies have been cloudy where I've been oh, most I'm of the sorry. time. But I believe that I'll have enough time here to see a dark, clear night, and I'm really looking forward to seeing the southern sky, the the southern constellations and things that I have never seen before. Well, I hope it works out for you. (laughs) Me too. Because in actual fact, something like 80% I've read of Europe and North America no longer sees true darkness, no longer experiences true darkness. So most of us, when we look up at the night sky, we don't see that much anymore. Yes. As an astronomer, does that bother you? Oh, it bothers me very much. I'm very saddened by the fact that 
many, perhaps most people around the globe today live in urban areas, and we have so much light in these urban areas that we have basically drowned out our night sky. And yet a lot of what we think of as as being human throughout human history has been informed by just staring up with wonder at the night sky and seeing the vast numbers of stars and reflecting upon that. And yet most people are not having that experience in today's world, and that makes me very sad. But the irony is that we also have some good news in this story, which is while our night skies are harder to see these days, our telescopes around the world and in space are are getting better and better, and the Internet allows people around the world to see fantastic images of space from telescopes that are disseminated that way. So we have kind of a a two-sided situation here about seeing the the universe um, from the ground now. Because it's... It was partly a personal experience of the night sky for you that led you to astronomy. Is that right? Yes. I grew up in a rural area in the central part of the U.S. Um, in we could see the night sky easily out on this farm where I grew up. I loved nature. I was able to roam freely in meadows and, and investigate streams and things of nature. And so I, I love the natural world. I love animals. I love trees. And I think it's that love of, of nature itself that made me interested eventually in science to be able to study nature. But we could also see the night sky clearly. And I remember taking family walks in the evenings and enjoying looking up at the stars and just imagining to myself what it would be like to uh, be able to explore space. And about the time I grew up, we were also getting the first images from some of these probes that had been sent out from Earth to explore the other planets in our solar system. In particular, the Voyager probes were sending back images of the moons of like Jupiter and and uh, planets in our solar system. And I had never seen these exotic worlds before. Some of these moons were ice covered. Some of them were covered with volcanoes and things. So so these exotic worlds fascinated me, and I imagined what it would be like to, to go and explore these, these exotic worlds in space. So I think all of that together made me kind of interested in being a part of space exploration. But it was years later before I realized I could actually be an astronomer and, and, and do that as a profession. Yeah. So as well as these scientific questions about what's out there and how it all works, do you think there are kind of personal and metaphysical questions that should be prompted by us stargazing? <laughs> well, I think throughout human history, looking up at the universe has prompted these deeper questions of who are we and where do we fit in this vast universe? I think the first response we should all have when we look at the universe, either with our own eyes or, or at some of these amazing images from telescopes, is a sense of, of wonder and, and awe and appreciation and humility and, I hope, curiosity. So um, I think looking at the universe does invoke a sense of contemplation about who we are as human beings and how do we fit in this bigger picture. Now, you have a comet named after you. What? Mm. <laughs> this was a big unexpected surprise when I was a university student. <laughs> And a professor at my university took a group of students out to an observatory in Arizona. 
And we were learning what astronomers do. I didn't know what astronomers do on a daily basis. Most people don't. So I went and um, was just learning how to look at these photographs that had been taken through a telescope there. In fact, a series of photographs of the same place in the night sky. And if there was something nearby in the solar system moving, it would jump position between those exposures. So I was supposed to find a bunch of asteroids, which are nearby objects. They're, they're nearer to us than the distant stars, so they, they would move and position between these exposures. And I wasn't finding any asteroids by analyzing these photographs. But I did find something else. I found this kind of bright thing that had kind of streaked across the exposures very quickly. And I talked with the, uh, the astronomer there who I was working with, and there wasn't any known comet or asteroid that would, would have been in that position at that time. So we contacted the authorities who, who uh, keep track of all the asteroids and comets and things that, they, that we know about in our solar system. And they said, no, there's no known object at that, in those coordinates at that time. See if you can find it again. So we went back out with the telescope and tried to predict where it might have gone, and we found it again. And at that point, this um, professional center that keeps up track of these things announced this potential discovery around the world, and other astronomers began to see it as well. So they decided that this must be a newly discovered comet. And I didn't have anything to do with naming it, but this professional center named it um, after myself and after the astronomer who had taken the photograph on the plate, the photographs, his name is Brian Skiff, so they named it Comet Wiseman Skiff. And so that was exciting, and I ended up uh, studying that comet and observing it and, and, and trying to discern its chemical makeup for a research project after that. That is very yes. cool. Yes. <laughs> I'm wondering, would... Anyone who had seen those two images and was studying them, would they have come? Or were you extra attentive? And I think anyone who was in that place at that time, having been just taught how to scan these photographs, would have found it. So I'm, I feel very fortunate <laughs> to... Uh, you know, I think the key actually was, was not... Um, that I had some special skill to see it on the photograph. Like I say, I think anyone who had been there at that moment and had learned how to scan the, the photos would have found it. But I think the key was that I had the opportunity to go out to the observatory in the first place with this group of students. And so for that, I'm very grateful for the professor who made this opportunity for students to go out. I'm very grateful to the staff of Lowell Observatory who welcomed students and gave us the chance to have these opportunities. So there's a lot of people that I'm grateful for, and I'm also glad that I was adventurous enough to take the opportunity to go. Now, it's a periodic comet. Yes. It means it comes back. It comes back. It comes back quite frequently. That's right. So some comets are in trajectories where they come, they typically hover way out away from the sun in the far reaches of the solar system, so beyond Pluto, way beyond but sometimes a comet can get a little perturbed due to the gravitational pulls of the planets and things and will come in closer to the sun and closer to, to the Earth. But sometimes it's just a one-time pass. They come through and then they shoot right back out and they never come back. But some comets get caught in, in elliptical orbits, which means they, they come back periodically. So this comet is actually a periodic comet and it comes back frequently every six and a half years. So that's, that's the good news. So do you have a party every six and a half years um, when it comes back? It's more like a 
plea that I put out for some professional astronomer somewhere to see it again, because the bad news is that this is a very dim comet. Mm -hmm. And so most people won't see it and can't see it. You really have to have a a major telescope and and a, a true interest in looking at very faint, dull comets to see this thing. And so I'm always hoping someone around the world will will look at it when it comes back and will make sure it's still <laughs> there. So, But it's, it's fun to, to know something about something in the solar system this way. And am I right to say that it's even been photographed from another planet? <laughs> well, not the full comet that I know of, but there was, there's a very interesting paper that came out a few years ago from some, a science paper from some uh, researchers in Europe who saw, interestingly, a photograph taken from one of the rovers on Mars. So these are one of these robotic things driving around on the surface of Mars. And the rover took an image of the, the the Martian sky. And just like occasionally from Earth, when you look up at night, you'll see something, a bright uh, streak of light. We call them shooting stars sometimes. But they're really just uh, burning up pieces of rock that hit our atmosphere and streak across the sky. Well, they saw in these pictures from the rovers on Mars a meteor streaking across the Martian sky. And they traced the trajectory of that burning piece of, of rock and they deduced that in, they felt it was likely this was debris from the tail of Comet Wiseman Skiff. So how <laughs> exciting is that? that yes, wonderful. really, really, really fun, really cool. I feel kind of bad asking this because, you know, what you're talking about there is so self-evidently cool. <laughs> but why is astronomy worth doing? Why is it worth kind of investing in? Sure. Well, I think societies always have to answer this question. You know, how much are we as a society going to invest in sort of directly addressing the bad stuff, you know, healing diseases and, and stopping crime and, and defense? And, you know, those things need to be addressed versus the investment in kind of the, the more aspirational aspects of human life, education and the arts and even um, exploratory type science basic research. And there has to be a balance there. And it's always worthwhile. You know, we're constantly having that discussion and all around the world as to what that balance should be. Because if you only address the problems face on, you never solve them because you need some more positive energy in, in a society and culture and aspiration to kind of feed into lifting people up from from just the negative. On the other hand, you have to address some of the, the bigger challenges. Turns out that if you do basic research and fund some level of basic science, basic exploration, whether it's astronomy or any other kind of just basic understanding science, it lifts the human spirit. It tends to give people motivation to do other kinds of science as well, feeds a lot of other uh, uh, worthwhile human enterprises. And in, in the case of astronomy, I think it feeds into art and music and philosophy and theology and all kinds of things. But also it feeds into some of the more applied research. So even basic research in astronomy, which was meant for looking at the stars, some of the detectors and things we build for telescopes, it turns out they have applications in medical research and things as well. So these efforts feed one another. And so I would say that as human beings, we, we need some investment either as individuals or as societies in these kind of spirit-lifting activities, and certainly exploring our universe is a, is a very basic human curiosity that I think lifts the human spirit. But it also feeds directly 
and indirectly into some of these more applied efforts in space and science and technology that, uh, that have more pragmatic impact, if you will. So how far can we see? <laughs> Is that an answerable question? <laughs> well, we can see quite far. In fact, it starts becoming nonsensical, at least for our, our practical purposes, to, to speak in terms of miles and kilometers at some point. So astronomers use a concept of light years. So a light year is a distance. It's a distance that light travels in a year. And so when you're looking at anything in space, you're looking at something as it was when the light began its journey to you or to your telescope. So our sun, for example, is eight light minutes away, which means that the sun that we see in the sky is not the way it is absolutely at this moment. It's as it was eight minutes ago because it takes that long for the light to get to us. Same for things farther away. Um, the nearest star is about four light years away. So, uh, so that's how long it takes for light from Alpha Centauri to get to us. How far can we see? Well, we can see almost as far in light years as the universe is old. So we now think from several lines of evidence that our universe had a very energetic beginning um, with a burst of energy and inflation about 13.8 billion years ago. And we're now looking back to within that first 0.8 of the 13.8 billion year history of the universe. So those galaxies are just baby galaxies that we're seeing. They, they're what we call proto-galaxies. They have some stars and some gas, but they're not very massive. And it turns out as we look at all these intermediate galaxies that are closer to us, we see that galaxies will merge together over time. They get bigger. They have generations of stars coming and going. So we can actually kind of see that as a time machine, but we can't see all the way back to the very beginning. That's what everybody would like to know. But the physics is such that the light itself from, from the Big Bang, as we call it, is not really visible right at the instant of the beginning of, of the universe. But shortly thereafter, the light is visible in a form of background radiation. So there's this leftover radiation from from those early moments of the universe that fills space everywhere. And any direction you look with a special kind of telescope, you can see that basically that uh, leftover baby burp, if you will, from the, uh, from the beginning of the cosmos. It's called the cosmic microwave background uh, radiation, and we can see it everywhere. So to me, that's about as close as we'll be able to see to the beginning of the universe. You're listening to Life of Faith, and today, to celebrate Science Week, we're bringing you a conversation Natasha had back in 2018 with astronomer and finder of a comet, Jennifer Wiseman. We can all be wowed by a starry night sky or by some of these amazing images that come back via telescope from the far reaches of the universe. But really getting into the physics, the data... I wanted to know whether that kind of spoils it for you, whether the universe still seems as amazing and beautiful when it's your day job. The practice of science on a daily basis is generally something that's not quite as, as grand and, and glamorous as contemplating the big questions of life. It's usually focusing on doing a particular experiment or a particular observation and analyzing it using tricky software on the computer and being frustrated when things don't work the way you'd hoped they'd worked or 
or uh, or answering some of the more minute questions that feed into the bigger issues. So we don't always, when we're doing our work as scientists and as as astronomers, we don't always get the moment-by-moment luxury of contemplating the big questions. But I do think that our day-to-day work occasionally enables us to step back and say, how do these little specific questions we're asking, maybe about a specific molecule in interstellar clouds or a, a very specific star or something like that, how does what we're learning fit into bigger questions about how our stars formed in the first place and where does our solar system fit in and, and, and the history of the universe? And, I, and one thing that helps me is when I speak to other people who are not professional astronomers and I get to kind of have a conversation such as we're doing now that enables me to kind of step back and think about the big picture that's one reason I kind of enjoy astronomy. I like all science, um, but astronomy at least is something that most people can connect with, even if they're not professional astronomers. Everyone likes to look at these images of space and to imagine what's what's out there. And so there's a, there's a connection point, I think, for all humanity, whether or not you're a scientist. What do you make of the fact that space is so beautiful and that these images mm. that we get from it are so beautiful? Do you think that's... I don't know if this is an answerable question, but studying these things, do you feel as though the universe is intrinsically beautiful mm. or is this, you know, as humans, we just, we make beauty out of what we see? Well, beauty is an interesting concept, isn't it? So I know that people in fields of expertise that I don't have, but studying the human, the brain and neuroscience have tried to understand what it is that we call beauty. Is it is it that we see symmetry? Um, is it that we see something that we recognize is beneficial to our lives, so we connect whatever that shape or color is with something good? That's kind of a basic analysis of how the, how the mind and brain works, which I think is interesting and worthwhile. But I also do think it appears that there's something that's that's actually real about the concept of beauty that we can't quite put our finger on, but everybody who looks at these images, as, as, as we do, recognizes something beautiful about them, that either their their colors or perhaps the symmetries or even just the beauty ab- about their very existence of stars and galaxies that are um, shining forth day or night, whether or not we're thinking about it. There's something beautiful about that. And of course, at the very basis of all this study in astronomy and astrophysics are physical laws and the mathematics that describe the physical laws. And those are beautiful, too, in their in their own way. So they're not uh, beautiful in the sense of looking at a colorful painting, but they're beautiful in the sense that we can take relatively simple equations and physical laws and see that they work across the universe. And we can actually use those laws and use the mathematics behind them to describe what we're seeing all over the universe. The fact that we can even do that to some extent is amazing. And, and uh, the beauty of mathematics and physics is something else that's, that's striking to anyone who, who looks at this. For you, does the beauty of the universe say something about God? I think for me, it does. Now, I don't think by looking with a telescope or a microscope that, you know, you can prove God or something like that. These are different kinds of questions. So we use our scientific tools to answer the kinds of questions that scientific tools are designed to answer. So 
you know, I can use my telescope to measure distances to galaxies or, or even to discern the evolution of the universe, you know, which is an amazing thing that we're doing with our telescopes. But for me, um, I am a person of faith. And when I look at the universe as a whole, it, it gives me a sense of God's providence, kind of, uh, I don't know what the better word for it, but, but majesty, kind of overseeing a universe that's, that's above and beyond what we can imagine with our human minds. And provision, you can kind of see how the universe has, through natural laws, has evolved to the point of having stars with planets and planets that can support life. But that whole cosmic history that we understand scientifically also feeds into my faith understanding of God's uh, provision uh, for life and his love of life. So, so I also get a sense, I think, that God is, is big and uh, looking over things that I'm not even aware of, and that makes me ever more appreciative. As a Christian, how do you move between the very sophisticated modern physics that you use in your work to try and understand the universe and reading the Bible, which a lot of people might think is a comparatively unsophisticated, you know, very ancient text? Well, I think that I use these different types of, uh, of influences on my life in ways that they were intended for. So science is, is a wonderful gift and tool to address certain types of questions. How does gravity work? How do stars form? What's the evolutionary history of the universe? These kinds of things are wonderful questions for science to answer. But science is not really good at answering certain other types of questions like why are we here in terms of the kind of philosophical question or how should I live uh, or can I have a relationship with God? These kinds of things I can't measure with my microscope or my telescope. But the Bible is important to me. You have to realize that the Bible is a collection of books and by giving it the respect that I think it deserves, you pay attention to who the original authors were, who the original audiences were, what were the messages that they would, the original audience would have taken from these various types of of literature, and what is the message that, that God was trying to convey. So the poems in the Psalms are different, for example, from the literature that we would read in the historical accounts of the nation of Israel or in the Gospels where we hear about Jesus Christ specifically. So I think taking these components of the Bible seriously on their own terms is what's needed and how I glean the most of it because I want to get the message out of it that was intended. Mostly I think the Bible is a wonderful portal for introducing us to a personal relationship with God. And that to me is, I think, the greatest gift of all because the Bible is, is a book, but it introduces us to God and to the person of Jesus Christ, who is truly our connection to God. Does the Bible say anything about space that you <laughs> find interesting, useful? Well, the Bible's not a science text, so it doesn't tell us specific things about how to study objects in space from a scientific perspective. But it is a wonderful book to help us step back and have a, a humble recognition of, of the magnitude of the heavens. I think of Psalm 19, 
that says the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. They're pouring forth speech and knowledge, but not using words. And yet people all around the world can get this message. It's a beautiful poetic psalm. Another one is Psalm 8 that says, basically, by looking at the heavens, the psalmist was writing, O Lord, how majestic is your name. When I look at all the heavens, the moon, and the stars, I get this feeling of insignificance. You know, who are we as humans? And yet, he goes on to say, um, you've given us value. You've given us dominion, which I can interpret in today's language even as science, that we're, we've been given the gift of studying the heavens. So in that sense, I think the Bible gives us a sense of appreciation for nature, an appreciation for all things um, in the natural world, a sense of humility, and even a sense of joy. What's your guess on whether there is life beyond Earth? So humans have wondered for a long, long time whether there could be life beyond Earth. What's changed in recent years is that we've started detecting these planets outside of our own solar system. So now we are thinking this question all over again. How would we know if there's life on these planets around other stars? We can't really go there, unfortunately. We don't have the kinds of spaceships that we see in the movies that would take us there. But could we somehow detect evidence of biological activity on these exoplanets outside our solar system with telescopes and things? So that's a big enterprise of astronomers now is to try to figure out how to study the atmospheres of planets and see if they have some telltale signs of biological activity just in the chemistry of the atmosphere. Our planet Earth has oxygen, for example, in the atmosphere. It's generated from plants through photosynthesis. So if you saw that from a distance, you might say, hmm, there must be some biological activity there. I don't know if we're going to find life beyond Earth. We actually might even find it someday in, in microbial situations in our own solar system. There's still some moons around other planets that might have oceans under surface ice that are intriguing to think about. I wouldn't be surprised if we found, maybe years in the future, that there are certainly habitable planets and maybe biological activity on other planets. It would, it would make a lot of sense to me because if the universe has grown and matured to the point where we can have life thriving on planet Earth. And now we know that planets are common, that most stars seem to have planets. Then with this plethora of planets, why not have other planets that could have life? And I also think that that would be perfectly in line with the character of God that we read about in, in the Bible, that uh, this generous fruitfulness that God has enabled for life on Earth, it would be quite in keeping if the whole universe is actually teeming with life. From the Center for Public Christianity, you've been listening to Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, and Natasha Moore. If this is a topic you're particularly interested in, you'll also want to listen to this really fun chat we had with Luke Barnes. So there's the stuff we think is out there in the universe, and then there's the stuff that we have seen on Earth in labs, like all the ordinary matter we're made out of. 
and it turns out that the ordinary stuff accounts for about 5% of all the stuff that's out there in the universe. So the rest is uh, about 25% is dark matter and the rest is something called dark energy. And the only reason you would call anything dark matter and dark energy is if you have no idea what it is, <laughs> right? So in terms of how much do we know on that scale, the answer is we're scoring about 5% in our test of what's the universe made of. I also had a great conversation with an artist who happens to work for NASA, Dan Goods. Good to catch up on that one. You need 60 rooms full of sand to show all the galaxies that we know about. And so I had one grain of sand, and that was our galaxy. And what was cool is I could have someone at JPL drill a hole a tenth of the size of the grain of sand into it. And so you look at it under a magnifying glass, and that little tiny hole is where we live, but it's also where we found these over 3,000 planets, just within our little tiny area of our Gosh. galaxy. You can find these conversations and more on our website, publicchristianity.org, or in the back catalogue of your favourite podcasting app. Please do leave us a rating or review, and help us get life and faith out to more people. Are you doing this? We say this every week. Do share this or any other episode with someone you think might enjoy it. We'd love that. Next week. If I had a dollar for every time they're in their marriage counselling seats and the wife says, we would be fine in marriage if only my husband stopped doing blah, 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 or did blah, blah, blah. And then he says, well, no, I'd be fine if only she stopped doing blah, blah, blah. You cannot change the other person. Mm -hmm.